From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. For many years, many patients have taken an aspirin a day to prevent heart disease or stroke. But recently, a group of doctors on the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force proposed recommendations that might change this practice. Here to tell us more about this is Dr. Devonic Chowdhury. He's an assistant professor of medicine, and he's the division chief of cardiology at Upstate. Dr. Chowdhury, thank you for making time in your schedule to talk about this. Thank you for inviting me for this uh, interview. Now, many doctors have advised their patients once they reach a certain age to take an aspirin a day. And before we get into the new recommendations, I'd like to ask why did that become sort of a rule that people would take aspirin once they reached a certain age? What does the aspirin do? Well, that's a great question. I think we'll have to trace our way back a little bit to the history of aspirin and how it uh, came about. As you know, aspirin in a unrefined form has been used for thousands of years. And then eventually, towards the end of the 19th century, human beings were able to synthesize aspirin outside of a willow bark for the first time. And at that time, it was used as an antipyretic. The antiplatelet action was first noticed in the 1950s by actually a family physician on the West Coast, I believe. And in the 1960s, the, the antiplatelet activity for aspirin was first brought into focus. Now, after the initial clinical trials um, you know, in the 1980s for acute myocardial infarction, there was a huge interest in aspirin because it clearly showed an improvement in survival in patients who were on aspirin as opposed to who were not. So that is where the interest in using aspirin as a uh, tool for primary prevention of cardiovascular disease started. And it was thought that since aspirin does such a great job of uh, keeping people alive after they have had a heart attack, it just stands to reason that uh, if you have coronary heart disease and haven't had a previous heart attack, and as you age over a period of time, like you are more and more likely to have those sort of blockages that uh, are not maybe symptomatic, it was thought that having an aspirin will prevent a heart attack and hence keep people alive for longer. I think that was the rational at that time. And there are some uh, primary prevention trials which did uh, bear it out to a certain extent. So aspirin is something, you said it's been around thousands of years. It started out to treat pain, right, as a pain reliever? Pain and fever. And then fever, the antipyretic is fever. How long ago was it that we learned that it would thin the blood? Oh, actually, this was noticed uh, in the 1950s. So actually, uh, I believe the name of uh, that gentleman was Dr. Larkin. Uh, he was uh, out of West Coast. And uh, he noticed that if people took a lot of aspirin for pain relief, they ended up having some bleeding episodes. So he surmised that giving aspirin for specifically that purpose might reduce their cardiovascular events, like prevent myocardial infarction. He reportedly treated about uh, 6,000 of his patients with uh, essentially chewing gum, uh, aspirin contained in a chewing gum. Uh, but you know, with, in 1950s, his initial observations were kind of ignored and uh, the, the approach died with him. And then it was revived uh, in the 1960s where some new laboratory methods were discovered and people saw that when blood treated with aspirin 
was loaded, more light went through, which means that platelets were not clumped. So that's how there was a resurgence in uh, interest in aspirin action on platelets. Interesting. Well, let's get into these new recommendations. What is the U.S. Preventive Services Task Force, and why do doctors listen to this group's recommendations? So the U.S. Preventative Task Force is a uh, group of volunteers. I think there are 12 or 14 people on that panel. These are leaders in their field. They volunteered their time to be on the U.S. Preventative Task Force for four years. And their job is to, the way they define it, is that they look for evidence gaps and knowledge gaps in the way we treat patients in various fields of medical sciences. And they look for those gaps and try to fill those gaps by recommending or directing of research, writing guidelines, essentially also informing the Congress regarding which segments of healthcare need to be funded for further research, essentially ensuring that the healthcare money that is being spent, which is obviously astronomical, is utilized for the appropriate purposes with the highest uh, return on that investment. So is it likely that the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, and other groups like American College of Cardiologists, is it likely that they're going to agree with new recommendations from this task force? Uh, broadly, yes. Uh, obviously, uh, all these uh, uh, specific organizations uh, will have their own nuances, but yeah, broadly, they do uh, tend to agree with the USPTF recommendations. And I know the actual recommendations are yet to be finalized, but just based on the proposed recommendations, as a cardiologist leading a department of your peers at Upstate, what do you think are the most important changes? I think uh, the biggest change that the USPTF is going to accomplish is to make the recommendations for aspirin more contemporary. The recommendation of taking an aspirin came from older clinical trials, which were done in the 80s and early 2000s. And at that time, the therapy for cardiovascular disease was not as robust as we have now. We have statins, we have ACE inhibitors, we have beta blockers, and they're more widely used. So now the newer clinical trials in the last 10 years or so that have come up, they have tried to answer the question of uh, whether aspirin is still relevant within the context of more advanced therapy from the point of view of primary prevention not from the point of view of secondary prevention where aspirin is clearly indicated as of today no doubt who are the patients that are likely not going to be advised to still take a daily aspirin so let's start with the ones who are actually considered to be at a very high risk for cardiovascular disease so let's say diabetes, patients with diabetes were looked at in recent clinical trials. And if I can just name it, it's called ASCENT study. And in absence of established cardiovascular disease, they did not have any benefit with uh, preventive therapy with aspirin either. So these are the patients that would be excluded. So unless you had some sort of a demonstration, either by an event or by imaging, that you have presence of plaques within the vascular tree somewhere, that pretty much excludes everybody else from aspirin as a primary preventative therapy for a cardiovascular event. 
secondary prevention would be someone who's already had a heart attack or stroke. Exactly. And they would still be probably recommended. Absolutely. And uh, just to also clarify, like when we say primary prevention, such as those who have not had cardiovascular disease, there are uh, like certain modalities of uh, imaging, which if demonstrate presence of plaques, which are a marker for atherosclerotic plaque, the kind of disease that causes heart attack or stroke, that is still considered cardiovascular disease. So let's say you do a carotid study and you show that there is a plaque in the carotid. That qualifies as cardiovascular disease. And then you do recommend aspirin in such patients. Uh, if you do a, a calcium score for the coronaries and you see that there is a high calcium burden which parallels presence of plaque in the coronary vascular tree, that qualifies as cardiovascular disease, even though these patients may not have had a heart attack or a stroke. So those modifiers are definitely available. So it sounds like a lot of people are still gonna be taking aspirin as a preventive. It's quite possible, especially if they less commonly use modalities such as a coronary calcium score or carotid study, a duplex study, that demonstrates presence of plaques, which are a harbinger of future events they would probably still benefit from aspirin. Now, do the recommendations address the different dosages? Because some people take a baby aspirin, so to speak, and some people take larger doses. Does that matter? In terms of secondary prevention in patients who already have established cardiovascular disease, this question has been answered uh, to the effect that 81 milligrams of aspirin is just as effective. Also, recent trials that looked at this particular a question tried to answer this question and the answer was that both were equally effective and at least in the more recent uh, trial it showed that the bleeding risks were not any more with 325 milligrams than with the 81. Mm -hmm. So yeah I guess they're equivalent so if 81 milligrams is enough and at least there is some data to suggest that it causes less bleeding from older studies it may be just safe to go straight to 81 if you have to continue to take it. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with the Chief of Cardiology at Upstate, Dr. Debonic Chowdhury, about the use of aspirin as a preventive for heart attack or stroke. So let me ask you about the patients who are no longer likely to be advised to take daily aspirin. These are people that were taking it as a primary preventive. In other words, they didn't have a history of heart attack or stroke, but there was some reason that you know maybe they would be at risk for it so they were taking the aspirin to prevent something that might happen is that correct. right yes that's correct and uh and most of these patients were recommended on the basis of uh, an estimation of their 10-year risk so previously it was recommended that uh, if your 10-year risk exceeds 10 percent then it may be a good idea to consider aspirin uh, whereas in light of current data, even in diabetes patients, specifically diabetes patients with no established cardiovascular disease, and even in those group of patients, it really did not show any benefit. I mean, there, there was clearly a reduction in ischemic events, and by that I mean having ischemic stroke or heart attacks, but the benefits were essentially countered by the increase in bleeding. So overall, it did not show any benefit. So that has to be taken into account that we forget that aspirin does come with uh, small but substantial uh, risk of uh, bleeding also.
So I'm sure you would say that patients who've been taking aspirin should definitely check with their doctor first. But in general, if someone is now advised not to take it, is it safe to just stop cold turkey or do you need to taper off of aspirin? Anytime you uh, discontinue an antiplatelet medication, there is a short period of slight uptick uh, in, in, in the body's uh, ability to form thrombus. But you know, when patients are on a small dose of aspirin, and you know, once you stop it, it just kind of gradually uh, fades away. So you can potentially stop uh, right away. Is there something that a person should replace the aspirin with? Is there another medication or something that they should consider? As of now, there is no such recommendation. Uh, I think they should focus on uh, primary prevention in terms of uh, their risk factors, let's say diabetes or, or hypertension. And the focus should be on controlling those risk factors. Well, I'd like to ask you about some other ways to prevent um, heart disease aside from aspirin and aside from medication, because I imagine recommendations may be vary depending on each individual patient. But in general, what sorts of preventive steps do you find yourself uh, advising patients to take? Well, um, as you know, uh, in both uh, SSCHA guidelines and also in U.S. Uh, preventive task force recommendations, lifestyle uh, modification plays a central role. You know, diet, uh, exercise, and also how one conducts oneself in general interaction. I mean, we know that uh, if you are a type A personality, like angry and constantly in conflict, it does increase the risk of uh, a heart attack or stroke significantly, like at least over 20% that we know of. On the other hand, if you're a type D personality where you have low self-esteem and you know conflict averse, but you're constantly uh, having some difficulty of adjustment within, that is even more significant in terms of uh, causing future cardiovascular events. So, you know, all those things, mental health, behavioral health, all of those things come together. If you have anxiety, your risk of a heart attack goes by about like 30%. So I think in addition to the lifestyle modification and diet, I think a significant stress has to be put on uh, mental health as well. Have you exercise. reviewed the results of a recent study? Um, it was in a journal of the European Society of Cardiology, and it seemed to indicate that going to sleep between 10 and 11 p.m., would help lower a person's risk of developing heart disease. So I wonder if, what impact sleep might have. Uh, you know, that essentially tells you that you should stop binge watching Netflix. There is a clear signal from clinical trials that heart attacks tend to happen early in the morning. Sudden cardiac death also tends to happen early in the morning. There are uh, studies on platelet reactivity, even when patients are on certain antiplatelet agents, which show that platelets are stickier between 5 a.m. and 10 a.m. than at other times, especially on uh, certain medications. Uh, so there is a circadian diurnal variation of uh, people's predisposition, predilection, you know, vulnerability to heart attacks, if you will. And one of the things on that same study, what the author suggested was that if you're sleeping late, you're also waking up late. And the early morning sun uh, is supposed to be one that resets the circadian clock. And you're missing that. So that clock is perennially disturbed. And that may have some impact on the way physiology reacts to that. But it certainly stands to reason that like many of us, you know, we are checking phones uh, while going to sleep. 
all those things are disruptive for sleep and certainly adds to the mental stress. I can only imagine if uh, somebody's a social media buff and are looking for the likes at uh, 10 p.m. And if the likes don't come through, they would be stressed. Right. Well, it seems like there's probably room for more research on circadian rhythms, but but also on aspirin, even though it's been around, it seems like forever, it seems like maybe there's uh, still a lot to learn about how it works, right? Certainly. We know that it blocks a certain enzyme uh, that form certain humoral factors that di both dilate as well as constrict blood vessels, what they call the cyclooxygenase uh, pathways. But aspirin also has some other effects in some of the clinical trials, especially when followed for a long time. So we do not know everything about aspirin action by itself. And one thing we know for sure that there is clearly a benefit in terms of reducing heart attack or strokes. It's just that if we could divorce its predisposition to cause bleeding from its ability to prevent stroke and heart attack, that would be potentially another game changer. Well, I appreciate you taking the time for this talk, Dr. Chowdhury. My guest has been Dr. Debonic Chowdhury. He's the Chief of Cardiology at Upstate. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.